Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. President Biden makes a surprise visit to Kyiv. And how united is NATO's support of Ukraine? This is the State of Ukraine from NPR News. In an unannounced trip, President Biden visited Kyiv to show U.S. support for Ukraine just before the anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion. NPR's Joanna Kakissis was with the president in Kyiv. Retired banker Nina Albul says she had a feeling something big was going to happen this morning. She noticed the city center in Kyiv was blocked and people were everywhere. She wondered, what's going on? And then I saw on the news that Joe Biden came here. And I couldn't believe it. I phoned and texted everyone I knew, and I asked, is it true or am I hallucinating? She says Biden's visit touched her so much she cried. Our young men and women are fighting to keep Ukraine free. And here is this famous man visiting us in the middle of a war. A year ago, many predicted Ukraine and its capital would fall to Russia within days. Today, President Biden was in Kyiv, standing side by side with Zelensky. You and all Ukrainians, Mr. President, remind the world every single day what the meaning of the word courage is. Biden recalled calling Zelensky the night Russia invaded almost a year ago on February 24th. You told me that you could hear the explosions in the background. I'll never forget that. And the world was about to change. I remember it vividly. Because I asked you, I asked you next, I asked you, what is there, Mr. President? What can I do for you? How can I be of help? Zelensky said, get the world to support Ukraine. Biden says he did just that. And the Western coalition has stuck together. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. As you know, Mr. President, I said to you in the beginning, he's counting on us not sticking together. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. Biden said sanctions have weakened the Russian economy and that the U.S. would seek even more of them. And Biden announced that he's seeking another half a billion dollars in aid for Ukraine, something which energized Zelensky. Such a hefty aid package is an ambiguous signal that Russian attempts to take revenge on Ukraine will be fruitless. Zelensky also laid out his plan for peace with Russia. It includes giving Ukraine NATO-style security guarantees and forcing Russia to return Ukrainian territory it has taken by force. He suggested Biden likes his plan. We agree on most points of my peace formula. It's a security imperative to restore the UN Charter and to defend an international order based on human rights. 
After their speeches, the two presidents paid tribute at a makeshift memorial to Ukrainians who have been killed fighting Russian forces. The memorial is outside St. Michael's, the golden-domed cathedral that serves as the headquarters of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And as the two presidents walked inside, an air raid siren went off, a sign that Ukraine is still very much a country at war. Joanna Kakesis, NPR News, Kyiv. In the years since Russia invaded, NATO allies have tried to present a united front. But there have been some big divisions over what weapons to send Ukraine, but also how the conflict should end and what role, if any, Russia should play in a post-war Europe. Here's NPR's Frank Langford. Throughout this war, the core message of NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has been unity. This is how he put it to NPR in an interview in Brussels. It is in our security interest to support Ukraine. And if you look across the lines, there's strong continued support on both sides of the Atlantic. But there are also sharp divisions of opinion on the way forward. For instance... Germany is routinely reluctant to send heavier weapons. Chancellor Olaf Scholz explained his thinking last month to Bloomberg News. We support Ukraine as long as it is necessary with all the means we can use, but also always avoiding that this war is escalating to a war between Russia and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO allies also have different attitudes towards Russia itself. Late last year, French President Emmanuel Macron said NATO would eventually have to address Russia's security concerns. This topic will be one of the topics for peace, and therefore it must be prepared. What are we ready to do? How will we protect our allies and member states? By giving guarantees for its own security to Russia the day it returns to the table. But for NATO allies in Eastern Europe, The notion of making security pledges to a nation that has relentlessly shelled Ukrainian cities is stomach-churning. And for them, it's also personal. They spent decades under Soviet domination. Linus Kojala runs the Eastern Europe Study Center. It's a Lithuanian think tank. This kind of rhetoric coming from the Western leaders uh, plays into the Kremlin's narrative because uh, I think uh, Russia launched an invasion of Ukraine not because of NATO, not because of security threats to Russia. Instead, because Putin wanted to stop Ukraine from drifting out of Russia's orbit and into the embrace of the West. He clearly stated that there shouldn't be Ukraine as a state because it's simply a part of Russia. So it's not because of NATO, it's because of Russia being an imperialistic power in today's Europe. Bruno Latte, a senior fellow with the German Marshall Fund in Brussels, says... NATO allies are also split on their ultimate goals after the war. The Nordics, Central and Eastern Europe, want Ukraine to win the war. And those member states that are perhaps a bit more further away from Russia also want Ukraine to win the war, but are probably also interested in some sort of deal, some peace settlement too. Christy Rake, Deputy Director of Estonia's International Center for Defense and Security, says these different approaches are partly a function of distance and history. Being situated next to Russia, we sense uh, the threat, of course, very clearly. For countries that are geographically more remote, the threat is not existential. Rake says great power privilege plays a part as well. France and Germany are used to seeing Russia as one of the major powers in Europe and are used to thinking that, in the end, European security matters 
are settled and decided among the big powers. But NATO didn't follow that principle after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And some analysts say it failed to take Russia's historical anxieties into account. Zach Pakin is a researcher at the Center for European Policy Studies, a Brussels think tank. If the United States had not spent the past eight years, or in fact the past 14 years, openly declaring that Ukraine would become a member of NATO one day, and had the United States not spent the past several years openly talking about Ukraine as if it was a, a de facto ally already of the United States, I think we wouldn't be here right now. Pekin says Russia has to be a part of any lasting peace. One way or another, whether we like it or not, at some point, we will have to address the question of finding an adequate place for Russia in Europe that provides Russia's declared security concerns with a modicum of legitimacy. Uh, And if we don't do that, then we're going to be in trouble. Given Russia's brutality in Ukraine, there is no appetite for a public conversation on this now. And some say, as long as Putin remains in power, there shouldn't be one. Roland Freudenstein heads the Brussels office of the think tank Globesec. I think there will be very, very loud debates in both Germany and France and other West European countries between those who are saying, no, with Putin, we cannot make a deal anymore. And those who say that diplomacy is about talking to people we don't like, I have an impression that probably the people who say no peace with Putin will win the argument. Managing this question of the future with Russia is the big challenge for this year, for next year, Olga Olicker is a top analyst for the International Crisis Group in Brussels. One vision is the way to make Europe more secure is to weaken Russia as much as possible and build yourself up so that even if they rebuild, they'll still be scared of you. Olicker says the problem with that tack is Russia's already scared of NATO and it has nuclear weapons. The other option, she says, is this. You talk to them. And you figure out ways of limiting activities like exercises, weapons deployments, and so forth that make it harder to start a new war. As Russia's invasion grinds into its second year, any such negotiations seem a long way off. But officials across Europe are already thinking about them and how to make sure that when this war in Ukraine finally ends, it's for good. Frank Langford, NPR News, Brussels. Thanks for listening to the State of Ukraine from NPR News. Please come back to this feed for more on the war and its impacts around the world. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. The right agent can make or break your home search. That's why Homes.com provides an agent directory that details each agent's experience so you can find the right one and ultimately the right home. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Macmillan Audio. One of the most thought-provoking books about the Middle East, Thomas L. Friedman's From Beirut to Jerusalem, is now available as an unabridged audiobook featuring a new preface read by the author. Find it wherever audiobooks are sold. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.